بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وافضل الصلاه واتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الامين وعلى اله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته الى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما وفقا في الدين يا رب العالمين الحمد لله this is our final session for module 8 covering المعاملات الماليه or financial transactions and before we cover this concluding lesson I just want to reiterate one point that I've mentioned a few times and that is this module endeavors to cover the bare bones essentials of Farda'in knowledge concerning our financial transactions we are not attempting to address every possible financial transaction out there in the world that we may face. So what we've presented in these past few weeks as, is, as I said, a very basic overview of what people should know about buying and selling and basic haram forms of transactions. If you have a particular financial transaction that is more detailed and complex, you should not suffice with the general points made in this module. What should you do? Consult a mufti. And a mufti here doesn't mean the person who just studied here or there and knows a few things about fiqh. It means they also know about financial matters. And you have to be diligent in that. Uh, so this is just a basic overview. Now so far, We've learned about the default regarding sales. The default is that they are permissible. And we talked about the conditions of a valid sale, general permissible transactions, general prohibited transactions. And we talked about the four main forbidden types of transactions that we tend to focus on the most. Those being riba or usury gharar which is basically the unknown jahala uh, gambling is similar to that paying for what is, has an unknown value or quantity we talked about this last week and we have the things that are prohibited to sell in essence and things that are halal in essence but prohibited to sale when they are used for a haram purpose. So we're going to look at those last two today, inshaAllah ta'ala. But before we do that, let's ask this question. What is haram in essence? The important word here is essence. What is haram in essence? Who can give us an example? Haramun fi dhatihi. Alcohol is a good example. Alcohol is haram in its essence. What else? Wine. Wine, liquor, beer, all forms of alcohol like this. They are haram in essence. Uh, someone said, I heard pork. Did I hear pork? Eating. Yeah. Oh, a good one. Then the same goes for alcohol. Right? He's, he's talking about some subtle point we made in module 2, I think it was, that when you say, is pork haram, that's actually shorthand. It's majaz. It's for, it means eating pork is haram. The pig itself doesn't have a shari attached to it. Right, so eating pork or drinking alcohol. These things are haram in essence. Why do we say essence? Because there are certain things that are haram not in essence, but they are haram for other than themselves. Haram li ghayrihi. Right? This is an important distinction to make when we talk about sales, buying and selling things that are haram. Because some things are haram to sell and buy and transport because they're haram in essence. Other things are haram in transactions, but the things themselves may not be haram in essence, but something else is going on. Right? So, Selling prohibited products, things that are haram in essence, would include things like wine, alcohol, 
haram foods, you say pork or carrion. Carrion is meta, that's any animal that dies uh, without being killed in a sharia appropriate way, either according to our standards or acceptable standards with Ahlul Kitab, right? Uh, or animals killed by idol worshippers, that would be carry-on. Uh, statues are actually haram in their essence. Uh, and we don't mean dolls, and we don't mean figurines and toys like that, because there is an allowance for those kinds of things. What is prohibited is to sell, for instance, a statue of a human being or an animal that, just like a huge statue, right? That would be a prohibited sale. Likewise, uh, something haram in essence, uh, anything that entails lewdness, fahisha, right? Uh, all forms of pornography and degeneracy. And lottery tickets, selling those would be haram in essence. Why? Well, the paper itself is just paper, but it's haram in essence because lottery tickets are the gambling, right? And gambling is haram in essence. Uh, what else could you add to this list? Something that's haram in essence. Hmm? Interest. So selling a debt to someone. Yeah. So we're looking more at products that a person would consume, but that would, that would work. Uh, drugs, right? Illicit drugs. Uh, you know, a so person selling opium and heroin and crack. It'll be the same as selling wine and alcohol. All of these things are haram fi dhatihi, and in their essence. No. Those are not haram in essence though Because you can use them for a halal purpose Right, it's like silk Okay, is silk halal or haram? It's, but in essence In its essence it's halal If I have a silk sheet I can sell it Could that person use it for haram? Or if it's a man Maybe he makes a silk shirt out of it, which would be haram. But maybe he has a skin condition, and it will be permissible. Or maybe he cuts it into pieces where it's only forming a portion of his garment, and that would be permitted. You know, so that thing, it, the silk is halal in essence. It may or may not be sold for something uh, that, that's haram, a haram purpose. So we're looking at the essence of the thing, right? So you mentioned gold. Oh, gold plates. You know, a person could sell a gold plate, and that is a store of value. For instance, there, there are some people who have that. They have silver spoons and gold spoons. They don't eat with them, but they have them as a store of value. Now, if they bought them to use them for food, that would be a problem, right? But the gold itself is still halal in essence. The way it's been shaped and used for a particular purpose may be haram, yeah. So these are prohibited transactions. It's just haram to sell them because they are haram in essence. So now we want to look at uh, some aspects of transactions. When a person, for instance, works in a grocery store or a restaurant, and in that grocery store there are things that are halal and things that are haram. In that restaurant there are halal food items and haram food items. Things are mixed. We want to explore this. We also want to explore the different levels of prohibited sales. Uh, when is there leeway? When is there not leeway? What is the ruling on facilitating haram for other people that you're not involved in? That's what we want to talk about tonight. So we begin with some of the words of Allah Ta'ala and the words of His Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We begin with the words of Allah Ta'ala in Surah Al-Talaq where he says وَمَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهِ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا وَيَرْزُقْهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَا يَحْتَسِبُ وَمَن يَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ فَهُوَ حَسْبُهُ These sets of verses are very important. In fact, some of the ulama, they say that when a person is facing a difficult period of time, something in their life, they can recite uh, these verses, verses actually verse 2 to 4, uh, for the intention of faraj, of, of relief and rescue. 
And whosoever fears Allah, he will make a way out for him and provide him from whence he did not expect. And whosoever puts their trust in Allah, he is sufficient for him. How many of you know Mahmud of Ghazna? I think that's his name. Ghazna, that's what they call him. He's from your neck of the woods, or his story is connected to your neck of the woods, many of you. So there's a famous story about him. He was in the area somewhere in India, and the story is that he was uh, about to engage in battle uh, against an enemy force. And there were lots of idols, of course. And some of the pundits and other guru figures came to him and offered him lots of treasure, lots of money for uh, not continuing with this advance. And he thought about this. Maybe he could take the money. Maybe he could take the money and use it for some good purpose. Uh, and then that night, he's, he spent the night in his tent and he was thinking it over. And he thought to himself, uh, how would I like to be called Mahmoud, the one who spared the idols to get some money versus Mahmoud, the one who destroyed the idols despite the offers of great riches. So he decided to push ahead with this advance and when he was victorious, he found that what the, the, the gold and the treasure stored within these idols in those compounds was vastly greater in some than what they had initially offered him. The idea being that if you have taqwa of Allah, you try your best to fear Allah in how you transact yourself, Allah will make a way out for you. Allah will make a way out for you in the time of His choosing and the manner of His choosing. The, the idea here is to have taqwa of Allah as much as you're able. Now, we have the hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, the famous hadith where the Prophet wasallam says, that whoever protects themselves against the doubtful matters, things that are questionable, then they will protect their religious commitment, their deen from shortcomings, and their honor from slander. Because they're not involving themselves in doubtful matters, no one can say anything. They're not involved in anything doubtful. And they protect their deen from falling into the haram. And the Prophet ﷺ says, but whoever falls into that which is doubtful will inevitably fall into that which is haram like a shepherd who grazes his flock around prohibited land he will soon graze in it so if he has his animals near the property line of someone else it's inevitable at some point his animals are going to go over to that other side and the same thing for when we get near to the haram by getting in that gray zone of doubtful matters so we have that hadith and we have the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ instructed us, leave what causes you to doubt for that which does not cause you to doubt. This is a far better state to be in. So the default is to avoid doubtful matters. The default is that if you are in a place that has halal and haram mixed, it is always better to avoid that when you can. But some people are in situations where it's difficult to avoid. Maybe it's the job market or you know, where they are in terms of their education and job availability, their life circumstances. Everyone has their own situation. So sometimes people find themselves in jobs where the halal and the haram are mixed in different ratios. But the default is when you can't avoid those things, avoid them. What we want to talk about are different scenarios. Now, we start with the operative principle, which is that it is haram to help other people do haram. Just as it is haram for a person to do thing A, which is haram, it is haram for you to help that person do that thing, right? And this is based on the words of Allah Ta'ala, وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَىٰ وَلَا تَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْإِثْمِ وَالْعُدْوَانِ uh, Cooperate with one another in righteousness and piety, but do not cooperate in sin and transgression. This literally means uh, do not help one another in doing the haram. If I would not do haram action A, 
I would not help a person do haram action A. And if it's haram to do it, it is haram to help people to do it. That is the basic principle. So how do we apply this to helping other people in the haram? Are there levels to this? There are. The ulama mention that there's basically two types of i'ana or helping people in haram. There is al-i'ana al-ma'siyah, the literal assisting someone in haram. And then there is being sabab, sabab ila al-ma'siyah, being a means that brings about the sin. And there's a distinction here, right? What are, what's the distinction? Well, look at number one first. Assisting in the actual sin itself. What does that look like in your mind? Assisting someone in a sin. Uh, you give the person a knife to finish someone off, to kill them. That's a very good example, right? Uh, you mentioned driving someone to a bar. Well, that example is actually coming up. And it's not as clear-cut as you, think, you might think it is. Assisting someone in the actual sin itself, because when you drive them to the bar, they haven't, they haven't consumed anything. They're at the curb. You see the difference? So there's assisting in the actual sin itself, and then there's being a means to bring about the sin. Let's look at number one, and then we'll look at number two. So number one has three basic scenarios. A, the person intends to assist in the sin. So this is Fulan. He has a grape orchard. And he intends to sell these grapes with the intention that the buyer is going to make wine from it. He has these grapes all gathered together. His intention is to sell them to wine company XYZ. And they show up and they complete the transaction. That is his Nia right out the gate. Okay? So that is directly assisting in the haram. Number two, B, is when the sin is clearly mentioned in the transaction. So maybe he didn't intend it in the beginning. He just has the grapes. He has the grape orchard. He has them all gathered, ready to weigh. And the person says, by the way, I work for wine company XYZ. And that sin is clearly mentioned. They say, we're going to use this to make wine. And he goes ahead with the transaction. He didn't intend it in the beginning. But when the person mentioned their own intention, he went through with the transaction. So this is also assisting someone in the haram directly. The third is when the person sells something to someone else and that thing they're selling has no other purpose except haram. Are there legitimate ways or legitimate uses for grapes besides making wine? Of course. Grape juice, you can make them into raisins. You can make vinegar even, yes. So there are legitimate uses to grapes. So you could sell grapes because the grapes are, they're not, they're not haram in essence, are they? If grapes are made haram, in a transaction, they are haram for other than themselves, the purpose for which they're used. So, but in case C, this person is selling something that has no other purpose except haram. So selling pornography, selling lottery tickets, selling alcohol, selling drugs, right? These things, I mean, drugs, it's a little more of a, it's a gray area because there's some prescription drugs that have legitimate usages but let's say alcohol or pornography or lottery tickets these things do not have any halal usage there is no way you can make lottery halal there is no halal usage for uh, gambling or uh, pork and so on so the ruling for all three of these is that they are all haram and both the buyer and the seller are guilty of haram they are sinful because this is a direct assistance in the sin. Person A is directly helping person B in that haram thing. Right? 
But we do note the distinction between A and B and the example in C. Because A and B regarding uh, well, grapes, those grapes do have a halal purpose. They could be consumed and used for other things. Whereas C has no other purpose but the haram. There is no purpose except sin. But in all cases, all three, it is haram for the buyer and the seller to engage in that transaction. So this is an example, number one, of direct i'ana ala al-ma'asiyah. Direct assistance in committing sin. The second one is where it gets a little more ambiguous. Number two, we said, is being uh, a sabab ila ma'asiyah. Being a means for a sinful action. So a person may not assist in the sin itself, but he still may be a means for the sin to take place. And this also has three categories. So a person can be a sabab mubashir, a direct means, such that if it was not for that person, the sin wouldn't have happened in the first place. And the fuqaha give a couple of examples for this. Uh, I'll mention just one and see if you can come up with another one. The Prophet ﷺ forbade us from insulting other people's parents. And in the hadith, he said, and I'm paraphrasing the meaning, that this becomes a means of a person insulting their own parents. How so? If you insult someone's parents, they will inevitably get angry and very likely they will insult your parents. So you became the means of them insulting your parents. You became the means of them doing the haram. You facilitated that by insulting their own, your, their parents. So what's happened here, there's actually two sins here. So there's the sin of insulting their parents. And then there's the sin of being the cause for them to insult your parents. So here, notice the person did not insult their own parents. But they were a sabab mubashir, a direct cause for their parents to be insulted. They were the direct cause of that haram to take place. And therefore, they are guilty of something haram. Can you think of any other example? This is it's a little tricky. Uh, so it's not that you did the action, but were it not for you doing something else, that thing wouldn't have taken place. Sometimes you can help people on saying riba. Like for example, if you know someone who is like upset of someone else, go and say, how is uh, that person doing? Yeah, you trigger them, right? Trigger. You, you trigger them. I hate that word, but yeah. You basically get them riled up by mentioning this person. You know that they're really upset with them. And you say, so how is Fulan doing? <laughs> it's different if you don't know, right? But like, let's say you assume you know that there's bad blood. You know this is likely going to happen, right? Uh, a more direct example is mentioned in the Quran. <laughs> that is the example. In the Quran, Allah Ta'ala instructs us, Allah Jalla Jalaluhu says, do not insult the idols that they worship besides Allah, lest they insult Allah out of transgression and ignorance. So in this verse, Allah Ta'ala is telling the believers, do not go out of your way to insult idols that the idol worshippers are invoking because you will anger them and that will be a direct cause of them insulting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now if that was to happen it doesn't mean that that person is guilty of insulting Allah they're mu'min they would never do that but they were responsible they were a sabab mubashir a direct cause of someone doing that so that is a, that's an example that the fuqaha mentioned for, for being a sabab, a cause, direct means for disobedience. So this was a little tricky because 
Imam al-Nawawi, uh, so he's mentioning the common thing. You know, this is, I don't know if this is in the subcontinent, but in the Arab world, this is everywhere. Someone is angry, and what does someone say to calm them down? They say, Salli ala nabi right? Now, Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, he mentions this issue in his al-Adhkar, his work on the different formulas of remembrance. Because that book is not just about dhikr, it's also about the fiqh of using your tongue. And he discusses, and he cites from other fuqaha from the Shafi'iyyah, the view that one actually should not tell someone, salli ala nabi when they're angry. Why? Because what if that person is so angry that when you tell them, salli ala nabi that they say something disrespectful or rude or they shut it down in a way that is disrespectful. Now you have become a cause for them falling into kufr. So most people don't know that. But the position of Imam al-Nawawi and other fuqaha was to avoid that. Uh, maybe an argument can be made that it would be okay to say it if you know the person's not so heated that they would say something like that. But, yeah. So the, that's number one. Uh, being a direct means to the haram. The second one is uh, it's a means such that it directly helps the sinner achieve the sinful act. So that would be bringing the alcohol for someone who wants to drink it. Right? They're, they're sitting here and you go and fetch the alcohol. You didn't drink the alcohol, but you were the help. You were the means of them doing that sin by assisting them. Now, your act of carrying the alcohol is not uh, bringing about the sin directly because you bring it from point A to point B. You're done. That's it. However, after that, he drinks it. So you directly helped him by facilitating his haram. Right? This is the more common of the examples after the third one. The third is being a distant and indirect means. So notice the difference between B and C before I explain the example. B is you are directly helping them and it's a direct means. You took the alcohol from point A to point B. You know, in that action, you didn't drink and they didn't drink. But because you facilitated it, you became the means for them to drink it after you did the act. So that's direct. The third one is being a distant slash indirect means of haram. So for example, example, an Uber driver who picks up someone and is asked to drop them off at a nightclub. Someone actually called me some time ago and said, I'm working for Uber, but I want to quit because I'm getting so many calls to drop people off at nightclubs. And am I doing something haram? Is my money haram that I earn from doing these, uh, take, taking these rides? And the answer is, well, we'll see. The rulings of these. The first one, A, remember we said A is the direct means. If it was not for you, that thing wouldn't have happened. That is haram, to serve as a direct means to the haram. If you are the means to the sin, that's also haram, if you're a direct means. If you are an indirect means, like the Uber driver, when a person knows that a sin would be committed, then it's makru because there's a causal connection between you dropping them off outside of the nightclub and them going inside and doing other haram th doing haram things. But it's not a direct causal connection. They may go in there to preach to people. They may go in there to, I don't know, they're going to smash wine bottles. Or maybe they're going to pick someone else up and, and get them out of there because they don't want them to be in the nightclub. Yeah, there could be a lot of reasons 
why they're going. Or they could be going to the nightclub because they want to have a good time and party and get drunk. That is the likely reason why they're going. But you don't have access to that knowledge. You don't know. It's a presumption. Yeah, It's a likely, likely correct assumption that that's what they're going for. But you're not a direct means of the haram. You're taking them to the place which in that place provides the direct means to the haram. So you're an indirect means. So the fuqaha say that if you are in this scenario where you're an indirect means and you know that it is most likely haram will take place, it is makru, meaning it is offensive and disliked in sharia, but not at the degree of being haram. Because it's still indirect, the causal link is not as clear as it is with direct haram. And if you don't know, then there's no blame on you whatsoever because you're not expected to know what people are doing behind closed doors when you take them from point A to point B. You don't need to know. And if you find out later that they were up to haram things, you're excused because you, you didn't have any knowledge of that. So this is the general way of looking at it. Yes. That's yeah. I mean, that's different from transactions, but because we're talking about transactions, as in the Uber driver picking someone up and drop dropping them off, and this is a monetary exchange, and that place is a nightclub. Uh, what you're talking about is being a bad example for others and sharing in the sin by leading people to bad. Like you see your friend at the club. Right. Well, the, the Prophet says, ala khair The one who points other people to good is like the, the, the doer itself. And the, the mafhum al-mukhalafa, the reverse of that is true. The adalu ala sharr kafa'idihi, the one who guides or points people to evil, uh, is like the one doing it when they are the cause or they are the influence driving them to it. Yani man ahdatha fit islam sunnatan hasana, falahu ajruha wa ajru man amila biha, wa man ahdatha fit islami sunnatan sayyi'ah, the one who uh, brings about, inaugurates an evil practice that people start to follow, they get the sin as well as those who act on it, who are following them in it. So being a bad example gets you the sin of those who are imitating you in that. Well, could that also apply to transactions? Like if you're in business and you see someone in the same business and they're selling lottery tickets, then, then it kind of be like, you feel like so, so-and-so's doing it, then shouldn't I also do it? Yeah, could be. It could be. I mean, it depends on the level of influence and, yeah. So, just go back to this list here. Uh, we're talking about, go back to number one. So, directly assisting in the sin, that's very clear. It's haram. When the person intends it, the, the, the seller intends it and the buyer intend that haram. Or when the, the seller doesn't intend it, but the buyer mentions the intention and they go along with it. Or when the person sells something that has no other purpose but haram. Those are all forbidden transactions. When they're a direct means to the haram, that is haram. When uh, they are directly helping in the haram, that's haram. If they are a distant or indirect means, it is disliked if they know that that person is likely to do something haram. If they don't know, then there's no blame on them. So those are the basic, that's the basic structure of the rulings on the issue of al-i'ana ala al-haram, or uh, being a sabab, uh, helping people in the haram, or being a cause for them doing the haram. Now, let's look at some applications here. Number one application, working as a cashier at a grocery store, that sells halal and haram food items. Now, what is the difference between this and a person who works at uh, a deli that sells ham sandwiches? What's the conceptual difference between the two? They're sold haram, which is haram in Yeah. 
you know, one is haram and they're directly handling the haram as the main part of their job whereas the other it's mixed the majority of things are benign or halal and then you have some things that are haram and they're not necessarily uh, directly involved with all of those transactions so the cashier is not permitted to sell haram goods on behalf of another person according to the jamhur the overwhelming majority of the fuqaha and when we say the overwhelming majority we mean the position in the school of Imam al-Shafi'i, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmad and the position of Imam uh, Muhammad and Abu Yusuf within the Hanafi school whose name am I not mentioning here? Imam Abu Hanifa we're going to come to that towards the end so that is a super majority excluding one view held by Imam Abu Hanifa that his two main students who were mujtahids in their own right uh, went against and sided with the overwhelming majority it is the general agreement that it is not permitted to sell haram goods on behalf of another person there is no difference of opinion about selling haram goods directly Right. You own something that is haram and you sell it to someone else. The issue is being a means or working on behalf of someone else. So you, you don't own that thing, but you're carrying it for someone else and you're working for that person who is selling the haram thing. So that's the basic rule. The cashier is not allowed. It is permissible, however, to work in a place that sells both haram and halal items as one's income would come from the halal portion forming the majority of the profits. So let's think of a grocery store. If the person can get out of handling pork products and alcohol products and everything else they do is handling halal items, even though that company is making profit, a portion of which comes from haram items, the majority of the profits they make are halal. And although the money is mukhtalat, it's mixed up, what you receive, you default to it being halal because the majority of what they make is halal. So you could conceivably work in a grocery store that does have haram products, but you're not handling them directly and facilitating their sale or carrying them for other people. So that's the way it would work. How? I don't know. It all depends. Sometimes you can choose to work in certain departments that, doesn't, that don't involve directly handling the haram. Or in some stores, they have arrangements where you do this, and if someone wants to transact something haram, you get someone else to take over, a non-Muslim. That's between, that's between them and that person. You're not involved in it. But if you're working in a place like that where it's mixed, it would be halal. Now the issue is being a means for selling, processing, or carrying the things that are haram to customers. So the, the person comes with the six pack, I don't think that actually works in the grocery stores here, you'd have to go to the, it's haram to work in a liquor store, that's obvious. Uh, let's say they brought a five pound box of bacon and you're the cashier you got to carry that bacon. you got to swipe it through the, the reader. you got to process that sale. You are facilitating the sale and you're helping carry it, perhaps. This would be haram. And it is what it is. The sharia ruling is one thing. And the solution for people who are looking for work is another. To, to see if there is a workaround that requires some creativity, maybe some resources, but that is the basic ruling. Now what if you can't find halal work? This happens. You know, there are people who, for one reason or another, cannot find anything uh, as a job except that it involves some interaction with the haram. And uh, without wanting to get into fatwa territory, if the person has dependents, meaning 
they're not being taken care of by a by parents or by elders. They are uh, responsible for caring for their wife and children or they're by themselves and they have no means of income. We could offer them to take temporarily the position of Imam Abu Hanifa in this particular issue. One could conceivably give that ruling in that person's situation. That would not be given to, say, a teenager who wants to work and can only find work at a place that, where they have to handle haram. Why wouldn't we give them that ruling? They're not, uh, they are dependent still on their parents. So they don't really need that job. But a person who has loved ones to care for, wife and children, and that's all they can find, then this is a kind of necessity that would uh, Give the, the ulama would give some leeway temporarily until they find something that is completely in the halal. Because Imam Abu Hanifa, as we mentioned, has this view. His two main students oppose this view, but it is still a view. And that view is that the actual form of employment is permissible and one is not responsible for the actions of others, particularly non-Muslims, because it goes back to an usuli issue, an issue of legal theory, are disbelievers addressed with the details of Sharia law? Halal kufar mukhatabuna bi Sharia. So it's a kind of a theoretical issue there, but it has these implications. Um, without going into detail about the uh, justification and the underpinnings of that idea, it's a view within the school. It is mentioned by Imam Zaylai, Ibn Abidin, and others. Uh, that the person is not selling something haram, they are uh, at best a kind of agent or they are doing, they're carrying something from point A to point B and they're not directly involved. That was the view. And I don't find, I don't rest comfortably with that view, to be honest. But you're looking at people who are struggling, this would be uh, a view they can take to at least give them a way out until they find better work. Allah Ta'ala knows best. So they should be looking for halal work. That should be priority number one. And they should be asking Allah to facilitate a halal job. And it's better to work in something that's doubtful over something that's clearly haram. So it's better to be in the doubtful gray zone than to be in the, the haram, that directly haram actions. Um, and one should try to avoid dealing with any haram things if they can, getting other employees to do it or finding a way, a workaround with the, the manager, whatever that may be. So that is uh, the basic answer. So some concluding thoughts. We've covered the basics of buying and selling, basic prohibited forms of transactions, riba, gharar, things that are haram in essence, or haram for other than their essence. Muslims are to stay away from what Allah Ta'ala has made haram and avoid buying those things, selling those things, consuming those things, or helping others to consume those things and use them. However, for a person living in a non-Muslim country in which the haram products are abundant and widespread, they should consider the percentage of the haram in the transactions in that place they work for. If the proportion or percentage is relatively small, meaning it's not the majority, then we would take the fatwa that it's not haram. We take that view of Imam Abu Hanifa for the person in that need. But they should be seeking employment that doesn't involve such matters. Now, one of the things uh, we reflect on in the Quran is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not just talk about uh, our prayers and our fasting and our personal piety and spirituality. Allah does not just address the human being uh, and the relationship they have with their Lord in terms of devotional practice. Allah ta'ala also dedicates a lot of time in the Qur'an to mu'amalat, how we transact with others, our character, how we behave with people, how we marry and divorce and deal with business matters, uh, inheritance law, and so on and so forth. 
because the Sharia is meant to preserve the religion and property and wealth and our intellect and our family and our honor. And the transaction laws touch directly on the ritual worship that we've talked about in the previous modules. Because the Prophet ﷺ has told us that in the hadith of the man who was traveling, Ash'ath Aghbar, he was, he was uh, covered with dust and his hair was disheveled all over the place. He's on a rough journey traveling and sitting there he raises his hands with his dirty clothes and disheveled hair and dusty face and says, Ya Rabb, Ya Rabb, making dua. And the Prophet ﷺ says, however, his clothing was haram. haram." Right? He was nourished by the haram. The food he ate may have been halal in essence, but the means by which it was purchased was haram money. Which means, haram. He was nourished with the haram, directly or indirectly. So how can that person have their dua answered? So if you want the dua answered, you have to make sure that you are consuming the halal and not consuming the haram. And if a person is not circumspect and careful about their transactions, they may earn haram and purchase food with that haram money and nourish themselves and their children with nar, with the fire. That's why it's important to talk about these things. And it's good to go over these things, uh, review them once or twice a year, just to know the basics, keep them fresh in your mind. Because what happens is in this society and elsewhere, people go into this autopilot mode where they just transact without any thought about the validity of their transactions or whether or not they involve anything questionable. So by knowing what is questionable and what is haram and what is clear, one is able to be more aware of those transactions in their daily life. And thereby they preserve themselves and protect themselves and their family from consuming the haram. And because when we think about haram, people think of pork. Right or non dabiha meat and uh, things like that. That's not the only haram thing you can consume. The other haram thing one can consume is something halal in essence. It is that meat in the halal store that is hand slaughtered dabiha, but the money used to pay for it comes from some haram transaction. So the the meat is is halal bidatihi in essence, but is haram. لِغَيْرِهِ is haram for other than itself because it was purchased with the haram. So this concludes our module 8 on the fiqh of transactions. And inshallah we're going to just do a brief look now at the forthcoming modules because uh, Ramadan is coming soon and we have module 9 which will actually take a little while. I don't, we're not going to finish module 9 before Ramadan. Module 9 is halal and haram. Now you're asking, well, weren't we just talking about the haram? Why more haram? <laughs> well, in the books of fiqh, when they talk about, they, you see the, the, the arrangement of chapters. You have tahara, you have salat, you have siyam, you have zakat, you have manasik of hajj and umrah. And then you start to get into the mu'amalat, marriage and divorce, uh, business transactions, inheritance and so on. And then you have judicial law, criminal law and all of these things. And particularly within uh, in the, the Maliki school as well as the Hanafi school, at the end of all of those sections you have this, uh, it's not an appendix but it's this section at the end. Uh, for the Malikis it's like miscellaneous. Right, but the Hanafis they're very organized Ahnaf, mashaAllah. they have it and it's called Al-Hadar Wal-Ibaha it is a collection of discussions on things that are uh, halal and haram like various things like you're asking oh, what about music 
Like, where does that fit into anything we've discussed in the previous modules? What about, what else? Think of something else. Haram or halal. Right? Okay, yeah, backbiting. Right? So the, the hadar wa ibaha section is just the collection of halal and haram. Do any of you uh, recall a book? It was very popular in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. It was by uh, the recently deceased uh, Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi, Al-Halal wal-Haram fi al-Islam. This was a very popular book in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And a lot of ulama criticized it and different people criticized it. And yeah, I mean, it has reason for that, but it's also, it was a very good contribution as well. This is kind of along those lines. So we're going to look at the halal and the haram in this order that you see here. So the haram that pertains to the eyes, then the ears, then the privates, then the stomach, the tongue, and the heart. And that's the order we're going to follow. Uh, for the tongue, we're actually going to follow very closely a particular text. Many of you will remember a couple of Ramadans ago, we did a course uh, called Matharatul Qulub, the purification of the hearts. We did it in two Ramadans. We covered in the first Ramadan, covering it, we covered the diseases of the heart. And then in the second Ramadan after, we covered the salvific qualities, the good qualities of the heart. Well, that author, the author of that original poem, Sheikh Muhammad Mawlud, he has uh, a poem called Maharimul Lisan, the prohibitions of the tongue. So we're going to use that text as our, our umda, our mainstay. Uh, for the heart, we'll probably use the Mathara. We'll probably use that same text, but in a more... A linear fashion, not as much detail, but just go through them. And we'll also look at the listing of the Kaba'ir by Imam Ibn Hajar al Haytami. Because he lists the major sins. Uh, anything that was ever said to be a major sin, even if it was differed over, he listed, listed them out so that people could just be aware of what they are. We'll probably go through that list as well. And after module 9, we have module 10 which is Aqidah 102. I promised that we will cover, we'll cover Aqidah 102. And that's uh, Aqidah issues that we didn't talk about in 101, because 101 was a very basic presentation of the Ilahiyat, theology, the Nubuwat, prophetology, and Sam'iyat, transmitted beliefs. This is more uh, narrow in focus, but it concerns contemporary issues. So it kind of overlaps with module 11 which is contemporary issues. But module 11 is different from 10 in that it looks not at aqidah, belief issues per se, but it looks at social issues to be aware of that are new or arising that need certain responses. The ulama say that certain things are fardain for you to know in your particular time when those things become rife. The, what the ulama may call umumul balwa, the, the general problem of something that spreads so far that you have to know how to handle it. That will be covered in module 11, inshallah. After that, we have a comprehensive review. Like, so 1 through 11. That'll be... F oh, you, you can't see the test? Yeah, and at the bottom is a test. And the test comes after the review. We're not going to record the comprehensive review because it's, no, it's really just questions and answers and discussion, I'll present to you, inshallah, a summary of all the modules. So all of the details within all of the slides will be compressed into a manageable document, inshallah, and we'll use that for a review, a group review, and address any issues within each module, and then we'll prepare for a test, and I don't know when exactly that will be, it'll definitely be post-Ramadan, and inshallah, with that test, you will have covered everything, bithnillah. And we finally get to give the nice shiny certificates, inshaAllah. Wallahu rasulullah wa alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Muhammad. Abu Abdullah, you mentioned it in that it has no good but it only sins. So the advertisements we see, they say it benefits older friends. 
You know the verse in Surah Baqarah, they ask you about alcohol and gambling. What is that? What is, what's the answer? Say that they have some benefit. The sin of those two things is greater than their benefit. So it's not used for anything but sin. The profit that is made, of course, some of that may go for some public benefit. But the, the essence of gambling is haram. Right? It's not like uh, something that is, hal- is halal in essence but gets used for a bad purpose. Because gambling is gambling. Right? Yeah. I, I missed a lot, uh, but I wonder if we talked about buying or selling or buying things made uh, using child labor or sweatshops or uh, drugs or things using uh, cosmetics, uh, using uh, animals as testing, uh, or GMO products. Mm. Each one of those requires a certain, we, need to, we have to narrow the question, the nature of the question, and some of those questions are different from others. We talk about child labor. You're opening up a can of worms when you, when you say that, because uh, something can be halal in essence, and it was procured through labor that may have been, uh, it may be considered child labor in the United States, but that child uh, in Sharia could be at an age where they could consent to work and earn money. So in U.S. labor law, that would be child labor, and that would be a crime. But the end product would be halal, if it's halal in essence. And in our sharia, if that child was of age and it wasn't, there, was, there was consent, it wouldn't, so there's, there's no direct uh, comparison between child labor laws here and what is haram in sharia. Like there's, there's nuances here. We'd have to see on a case-by-case basis how are these products developed and who's working there. It's, it gets complicated. Yeah. How about animal testing? Yeah, you have to look. I don't know. I don't know. What's the nature of the testing? And Wouldn't that be covered in contemporary issues? Yeah, I never thought about that. As, I mean, if you remember the slide from the introduction for contemporary issues, I had other things in mind. But, yeah, I mean, if there's ideas for those kind of issues, we can, if you can share them with me, we can look into them. Or, yeah, or ask the imam, we can address them. Yeah. A question about, like, for me, for the business, uh-huh. that working in a like, financial institution, or someone should be like a... Yeah, a lot of the questions about cooperating in haram center around working in financial institutions. And the ulama, they look at what exactly the person is doing, and... Is their work directly facilitating ribawi transactions or is it indirect work for the bank that goes for other things too? So they say, for example, um, let's say they are developing software. Okay, Let's say the software is only for ribawi transactions. I, I don't know what that would look like, but let's assume that's a thing. If it's only used for the purpose of ribawi transactions, then they would be directly contributing and helping in that haram. But if they built software that was used for the bank keeping uh, accurate records and measuring growth, and that includes halal things and haram things, the gamut, then they're not helping directly in the haram. It's something that is used for good and bad. That would be permissible, but direct contribution or helping in the haram would be prohibited. So what people need to do in those situations is narrow down their job duties, what exactly are they expected to do, and bring that question to a mufti and ask them, is this direct assistance in haram, or is it indirect in something that also has halal applications? And then inshallah, I get their answer. Mm-hmm. And 
if you don't work that many hours and you charge that many hours, would that consider economic? Yeah, I know where you're going with this. Can you click off your Can you click off the the main screen of your coding and surf the web for 15 minutes while you're just resting your brain, or do you have to clock off for those 15 minutes when you're surfing, doing nothing? That is defined by the author in the industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there are certain jobs which you have to clock in and clock out, like assembly line jobs, for example. Yeah. And if you're just start chatting and your assembly line slows down because of it. Mm. I, mean, I mean, hesitant to answer that question because I think Rolf also gets involved here, but because you're talking about measurements, we would go back to in the general sense. Any things that are measured, we should be careful about. But uh, I think the question we need to be, we need to look at the actual Orf too, right? Because the job entails a number of things, not just the literal time on the floor, but communicating, moving from person to person, the, the, the work relationship, it's, I don't, I don't know. But generally, yeah, you wouldn't want to clock in and not work those hours. To purposely do that, to, in, to inflate your hours, would, would be a type of rish, a kind of deception, versus clocking in and clocking out and in those eight hours there are times where you may goof off and talk to your co-workers but that that's generally seen as a part of the job itself having that camaraderie and yeah Allah knows best cigarettes tobacco yeah. we'll talk about that in the halal and the haram yeah okay. I have a somewhat Controversial opinion on that. Yes. Uh, I want to go back to the question about the Zoom driver. Do you speak up a little bit? I want to go back to the question about the Uber driver uh -huh. or the Muslim driver. In the category, uh, bear in mind that they're working for a company who has the policy that is the client. Uh, if he goes to pick up the client who brings liquor with him or with her mm -hmm. uh, what should the driver do at that time yeah you're not responsible for what they have on their person you know I, this is a different question but it's similar I think in those situations one should default to the view that they are not the direct participant in that and they are rendering the service of driving, that person may have something in their pocket that's haram. They may be intending something haram. You're not responsible for their actions or what they have on their person. You're not facilitating the haram through direct means still, even if they have it on their person. So, especially if the company's policy is that you just take the clients, you can't kick them out. And I, I've seen this take ridiculous, take ridiculous proportions too among some Muslims they take these really strict positions about dogs no you can't bring the seeing eye dog into my car dogs are haram right I, that, that happens in the case of alcohol it's a little more direct because there's no question that alcohol is haram but what if they have a bag of groceries do we make a distinction between groceries yeah you, even then you'd still be an indirect means because you don't have the ability to screen the passengers or the right to refuse if you're working for a company you're not a direct means of them doing the haram uh, I would leave it at that you know and if in these kinds of issues if a person is feeling uncomfortable let them go to a mufti and put the question in a very detailed way and take their answer I'm not a mufti, so I present the views that are there. People are going to have to choose to take what they feel is uh, closer to taqwa for them. If they want to avoid that because they feel bad about it or they feel it's doubtful, 
then let them explore the means of avoiding that. I don't know what that would look like if you work for a company like Uber, though. Could you refuse? And if you refused with a closed container, what would happen? Right. I guess uh, this type of issue, even the Christians go through the same thing. There are some devout Christians, they have a lawsuits. Like, for example, they don't want to make a cake, wedding cake for same sex marriages. Yeah, but they own that, they own that facility. So they have the right to okay. choose. They have the same issues. Mm. Yeah, it's a little different in that the, the, the cake bakers, they own that, rest, that, that bakery. So as the owner, they have full right to choose what they will and will not bake and what customers they will and will not deal with. Whereas if you're working on behalf of someone else and they have those policies like the Uber driver, you, you don't get to make that executive decision without consequences. Uh, definitely, if you are the owner, let's say you own the car and there's no consequence for you refusing, you want to refuse, refuse, you know, maybe you get a bad review, I don't know, but when you work for someone else, it's tough, whereas if you're independent like the bakers, you can make that decision, I'm not going to bake this cake, and people should have the, the right of association and be allowed to serve or not serve whoever they, they will if serving them is a violation of their moral values, like a service that is an affront to their moral values. You know, bake this cake with this imagery, for instance. Wallahu a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Wa yakum.